0: This is History West Midlands. More than six million people watched the first episode of Series 5 of the BBC's Peaky Blinders, the mesmerising drama of violence, moody characters and intrigue set in Birmingham. Among them was the internationally recognised expert on Shakespeare, Professor Ewan Fernie from the Shakespeare Institute of the University of Birmingham, who also leads the Everything to Everybody project to unlock the world's first great Shakespeare library in the city. As Professor Fernie tells the publisher of History West Midlands, Mike Gibbs, he was fascinated by the strong resonances between the violent world of the Peaky Blinders with its tortured characters, especially Tommy Shelby, and Shakespeare's masterpiece of paranoia, Macbeth.
1: You and we're here in the centre of industrial Birmingham, and we're talking about that wonderful and much acclaimed BBC series, Peaky Blinders. You first saw it and immediately thought of Macbeth. Why?
2: Well, I was sitting at home watching the television. I would slowed to start with Peaky Blinders and I hadn't watched it till Series 5 started and I was leading a big project in Birmingham. So it was really for that reason I thought, I really can't afford to miss this, I need to tune in. But I wasn't expecting it to be a Shakespearean experience. But as I was watching it, like everyone else, I found Cillian Murphy as Tommy Shelby magnetic. And I suddenly thought, He's a Birmingham Macbeth. It's the same qualities of, on the one hand, murderous brutality, but on the other hand, a kind of sensitivity both to his own suffering and to life in general, a kind of refinement that was so compelling and I just sort of, as it were, looked in his eyes on the TV screen and thought, you're you're a Birmingham Macbeth.
1: And... Obviously, this brilliantly engaging plot that has now run through a number of series, it relies on shock and awe. Yeah. Does Macbeth have the similar sort of structure?
2: It does. I mean, obviously, we think of Shakespeare and we think of it as high art and making sort of mystical demands on our, our higher sensibilities. But Macbeth is a gruesome thriller, really, and it's structured... So not just around violence, it's kind of structured as violence. It begins with the most extraordinarily compelling descriptions of the berserking violence of Macbeth and his right-hand man Banquo at war. And then it leans, you know, more and more heavily towards the murder of the king. And then, after the murder of the king, Macbeth murders his mate Banquo, who's a bit too close to him, a bit threatening. And then... He murders or has murdered Macduff's wife and children. And then there's a big fight at the end and Macbeth is himself beheaded. So the whole thing is a kind of, it's punctuated by violence, but as I say, it's kind of structured as violence with this terrible murder at the centre of it, which we don't see, but which haunts the whole thing all the more because we don't see it. Repeating again and again, like the kind of machine gun fire of Tommy Shelby's machine gun. There's a terrifically energetic, rather terrifying speech from Macbeth which describes how Macbeth almost single-handedly prevails in the battle defending the realm of Scotland before the play begins. Doubtful it stood, as two spent
3: swimmers that do cling together and choke their heart. The merciless Macdonwald, Worthy to be a rebel, for to that the multiplying villainies of nature do swarm upon him, from the western isles of kerns and gallow glasses is supplied, and fortune, on his damned quarrel smiling, showed like a rebel's whore. But all's too weak, for brave Macbeth, well, he deserves that name, disdaining fortune with his brandished steel, which smoked with bloody execution, like valour's minion, carved out his passage till he faced the slave, which ne'er shook hands nor bade farewell to him till he unseamed him from the nave to the chops and
1: fixed his head upon our battlements. And Shelby himself has been damaged by war in the series, as has the rest of his family. Is there a similarity there with
2: Macbeth? Again, I think there no doubt is. Macbeth is a kind of man of war. He is the man of war. I mean, he hits the enemy and the enemy's army like a kind of thunderbolt. He's said to bathe in reeking wounds. So there's this terrible sense of, I suppose, both kind of extraordinarily efficient and powerful and kind of horribly manly violence on the one hand. But I suppose the other thing that there is in Macbeth and I think also in Peaky Blinders is that that horror is a kind of journey into the dark, that there's something awfully compelling about it, that it's Macbeth knows something terrible, but it's a kind of dignifying Knowledge And I think that's true of Shelby as well. I mean, it is an extraordinary performance, I think. I mean, he's quite a pretty boy, actually, Killian Murphy. And yet he's got a face that carries all of that sense of weary experience and this sort of dark knowledge that he wants to put to use, doesn't know what to do with. And there's a great
1: self-loathing yeah. from time to time, yeah. very memorably, yeah. about Tommy Shelby.
2: There
1: is Can there. we say the same about Macbeth?
2: Yes, I think we absolutely can. That he, There's an urge for oblivion in Macbeth. On the one hand, there's a double urge, really. On the one hand, he's given away his immortal jewel, as he said, the thing that we should most cherish in ourselves. He's given away his soul. And part of him wants desperately to maintain his position, for which he's given it away, the power and authority, the legitimate authority he's found for himself, And part of him thinks, well, sod it, it's not worth having. It's an emptied out life. He says that. He says the wine of life is gone and all that is left is the mere lees to brag of. There's nothing left in his glass and he just wants to smash it against the wall. And again, that's absolutely true of Shelby, isn't it? So you get this kind of alternation between the most terrible brutal violence, which expresses a, a rage against life and a rage for life on the one hand. And on the other hand, the sense that this is a, it's shadow play. None of it's worth it. He's dead already. I think that's the crucial thing. Both Macbeth and Tommy Shelby are absolutely alive in a way that in our normal, you know, conventional conformist lives, we rarely achieve. And they're dead. They've given away their immortal jewel. They've sold life down the canal, as it were. And it's really not worth Doing So that fascinating alternation between life is mine, I've made it mine, I'm the king, nobody's going to touch me, nobody's going to threaten me on the one hand, and on the other hand, feeling that this life that they've gained, this prize, this crown that they've sought and won, they've won at too great a cost, and it's not worth having. And there are powerful sequences
1: where Shelby's imagination runs away with itself, and he He sees visions.
2: Yes, and that's very like Macbeth, who's haunted by visions and goes to the witches and sees things rising from the cauldron. And Shelby, too, kind of leaves his respectable life as an MP or as head of the family firm and is suddenly assailed by these hallucinations, which are full of portent and menace. And there was a moment in series five, a really weird moment, which put me absolutely in mind of Macbeth. And that's the moment where Shelby goes out of his huge house he's bought while his son's having a violin lesson and sees that somebody's erected a cross and strung up a model of Tommy with his flat cap on, on the cross. And he sprays it with machine fire. It's a really complex image. And it reminded me of an extraordinary moment when Macbeth and Banquo are said to have themselves erected another cross, re-crucified Christ in the play. This is the speech.
3: Except they meant to bathe in reeking wounds or memorise another Golgotha, I cannot tell. But I am faint, my gashes cry for
2: help. So watching Peaky Blinders with this gangster spraying a crucified model with bullets shocked me and made me think that both Macbeth and Peaky Blinders are forms of entertainment that dare to reimagine the crucifixion, to do the crucifixion again.
1: And part of the fascination of the Peaky Blinders yeah. series yeah. is the constant political dimension that's yeah. swirling around. Yeah. You've got Winston Churchill, yeah. now brilliant. we've got Mosley yeah. and the, the fascists. Yeah. Do we see something similar here also in Macbeth or not?
2: Yes no, I think. I mean, yes, in that we've said that Macbeth's a kind of thriller, but in a way, of course, it is a political thriller, not least. But we've got to remember that it's written during the, the kind of high tide of monarchy. James I is making extraordinarily compelling and convinced claims for the divine right of kings. And this is a play which kills a king, it would seem, in front of James I himself. It was performed in front of him at Hampton Court. It's an extraordinary thing to do. And the play, when Macduff breaks into the murder chamber and sees the murdered King Duncan, he says, you know, horror, 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 tongue nor heart cannot conceive nor name thee. And he's describing what he's seen. He doesn't say, you know, I saw an old dead Man, he says he looked upon death itself. He looked upon the great doom's image. I mean, these are amazingly powerful phrases. And he is looking at more than a dead man. He's looking at the absolutely violated symbol of a king. And so Macbeth in its own time is doing something unspeakable in front of an audience of people who live in a monarchy who are asked to worship the king. So to that extent, it is a political thriller. But the other thing in the background here significantly is that it was probably written in 1606, so its immediate context is the gunpowder plot, the attempt to blow up the king in parliament. And, you know, the year after that, it murders a king on stage. So it's extraordinarily and shockingly political. It's also true, as scholars have pointed out, that when... Macbeth goes to the witches for some assurance and sees a kind of line of future kings. It's seen as pointing towards King James. So there's a kind of political flattery in the play to James. But in a play which violates kingship, Duncan is also imagined with his silver skin laced with his golden blood. And again, you're not just seeing a corpse there. You're seeing, you know, the murdered body of kingship itself.
1: Tommy Shelby is seen as a leader, as a great champion of the working class, which he's actually exploiting. Yeah. Was Macbeth also seen as a leader? Is there a comparison?
2: I think there is, because Shelby is, you know, again, it's part of the reason why he's like Macbeth. He's a natural leader, he's a gifted man who ought to be on top. There's a sort of natural justice in his rise to some extent for all its brutality. You look at him and you think, no, you've got something. Similarly with Macbeth, Macbeth is the top man. He's more potent than anyone in the play, infinitely more potent than, I was going to say, creepy King Duncan. I mean, Duncan becomes regarded as a violated saint in the play, but actually what Duncan says at the beginning when we meet him is very curious. I mean, he, it's either stupid, uh, he says of the traitor, there's no art to tell the mind's construction in the, the face. He was a person on whom I built an absolute trust. And clearly we're meant to think, well, you idiots, You can't, none of us can read faces, but there's also a real possibility that you're just stupid, you're incompetent. And similarly, when a lot of the things he says are just impossible to lay hold of, because it's Shakespeare, we tend to think, oh, I just don't understand that. But actually, when Duncan is introduced to Lady Macbeth, He says the love that follows us sometimes is our trouble, which still we thank as love. And if you're scratching your head listening to that, I think you're supposed to be. You know, it's a kind of bewildering compliment. So where's the resonance with Shelby? So the resonance with Shelby is that there's a terrible sentence in which Macbeth ought to be king. And I think that's a way of making us lean into the murder. We kind of sympathise with Macbeth. We see that Duncan is cravenly dependent on Macbeth's superior potency. And to that extent, it's deserved. Macbeth should be king. And Shakespeare's brilliantly working us into a kind of complicity. And Shelby should be. And Shelby, I think... One of the things that's brilliant about Peaky Blinders is something similar is going on, I think. I think we're complicit with Shelby's rise to power for all its brutality. And, I mean, maybe I should just speak for myself here, but partly I'm thinking, no, look, you're the gypsy king. You should be king. And there's a beauty in that because it's a kind of, there's a kind of subversive class revenge. You know, you're from nowhere, you're a thug, and yet you're better than anyone that... Stephen Knight, that this series can throw at you, and I think that's what he's doing. You know, he throws Mosley at him, he throws Winston Churchill. It's, It's thrillingly subversive to put him in the same room as Churchill and think he can sit there and hold his own. And I think that, again, there he's a Macbeth, a pleb, if you like. Macbeth, of course, isn't a pleb, he's a nobleman. But compared to the king, he is, but one that should be king. They're both Macbeth the Gypsy King. Thinking
1: about the play... One thinks of the scenes with the witches, where one thinks about the fact that sleep is denied to yeah. Macbeth. Yeah. What resonances do you see around that with Peaky Blinders?
2: I think there are loads of, of resonances. And again, I think the series keeps almost ticking off comparisons between Shelby and Macbeth. Um Shelby in series five is sleepless, and Macbeth is said to have murdered not only King Duncan, Macbeth has also murdered sleep. So that's a big one, I I think. Macbeth also, he feels that once he's put the king to bed, stuck the knife in him and claimed the throne, he'll be secure. But he finds, like perhaps most tyrants, that he isn't, that he gets more and more paranoid, twitching with murderous rage. He says... I'd be whole as marble, founded as the rock, but instead he finds himself cabined, cribbed, confined, bound into saucy doubts and fears. And I think Shelby's the same. He's the king, he owns the family, but actually such as a kind of brutal power play he goes in, in for, he's always vulnerable to somebody else doing it to him. So he's kind of twitching with paranoid, murderous rage. But at the same time, he's sleepless on the one hand, and prey to all sorts of terrible fantasies and hallucinations and dreams, which Macbeth also is, and yet kind of sleepwalking through a whole series of crimes and misdemeanors and and murders. And of course, what's brilliant about Peaky Blinders is this is even now he's sitting in Parliament. You know that he's still haunted, possessed by this criminal life that he's living, nevertheless. And Macbeth similarly kind of is drifting into this horribly murderous career. He Beth has this amazing image where he says, I am in blood stepped in so far that returning were as easy as to go over, meaning that he's kind of lost in a tide of blood, in a sea of blood, and he's now walked so far into it that it would actually be as easy to carry on and get to the other side as it would to go back. And I think that's true of Tommy Shelby as well. Just sheer bloodiness is a great theme in Macbeth. And it resonates with the unforgettable theme music of Peaky Blinders, which is Nick Cave's song, Red Right Hand.
3: On a gathering storm comes a tall handsome man In a dusty black coat with a red right hand
2: But that glamorous and menacing stranger with a red right hand is also Shakespeare's Macbeth, who says...
3: Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand?
2: Shelby's also haunted by, obsessed with the man who can beat me. That man isn't identified, but that's the man to fear, the man who keeps him awake, who spoils his peace. Macbeth is haunted by the thought of his nemesis, who will be a man, not a woman born, and he takes a kind of opportunistic comfort in the idea that such a man doesn't exist and then it turns out to be Macduff who was delivered by caesarean section. It's a kind of trick. So there's another parallel there between this haunting figure who will depose the tyrant as the tyrant himself deposed the legitimate ruler. And then as we talked before, about the kind of combination of mad activity, a kind of murderous rage and a death wish, a suicidal death which which seems to kind of animate them both. They're both demonic and attractive figures. We think of Macbeth as Shakespeare's Scottish play, but Macbeth, in a sense, is, if not from Birmingham, Macbeth is from the West Midlands, because Shakespeare's from the West Midlands. And I think that's what this surprise... To watch Peaky Blinders and to see Macbeth in Tommy Shelby is to remember that.
1: The female characters are exceptionally strong in Peaky Blinders. Obviously, with Macbeth, we've got Lady Macbeth and the witches. Again, similarities?
2: I think so. I think the way in which the central female characters in Peaky R Strong is very similar to Lady Macbeth's thrilling and subversive strength. I mean, one of the great glories of of Peaky Blinders is Helen McCrory's Polly. We're told that she aborted a child as a young woman. That's her kind of backstory or hinterland. And that, of course, resonates with Lady Macbeth's boast, if that's the right word, to her husband about what she'd be willing to do to her own nursing infant.
0: I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me I would while it was smiling in my face have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out had I so sworn as you have done to this
2: It's an amazing speech and it's a speech of kind of a, with a kind of raging abortion in the, at the heart of it But Lady Macbeth also says, and it's incredibly, you know, it's written 400 years ago and it's so direct and powerful, as direct and powerful as anything in Peaky Blinders, I think. She's so eager to do the wicked deed herself that she says, unsex me here. You know, take my milk for gall and fill me from the crown to the toe full of direst cruelty. I mean, you know, anyone could say that now. There's nothing excessively Shakespearean and remote from us or too Blackadder about that unsex me here. And that really, I think, resonates with Peaky Blinders as well because the women are strong, but they're strong in the same way as the murderous men. There's a kind of assumption of the same sort of brutal violence. And, of course, that's what Lady Macbeth craves. And it's a very ambiguous thing, because on the one hand, it's horrible what you're seeing. Lady Macbeth deliberately says, you know, unzip any kind of maternity and step out as this new, extraordinary thing. And on the one hand, there's a terrible violation of of our ideas or traditional ideas, perhaps I should say, of what women and what motherhood is. And on the other hand, there's this wonderful transgressive freedom. I can step beyond that. I can be as brutal and as powerful as you. And that's part of the thrill, I think, in peaky as well. But in Macbeth, there's also Lady Macduff, who loves her children, who feels that her man lacks the natural touch, wonders why he's left them exposed to Macbeth's thugs. And that sense of a kind of ordinary, cherishable maternity, traditional maternity, motherhood, is a great missing thing in the play. The play marks it, but says this kind of world doesn't allow for that ordinary, cherishable virtue. And I think there's some of that in Peaky as well. So Arthur's wife, you know, is married to this, Euxorious, he loves her, kind of psychopath, but she's looking for, he said, where is ordinary life? And she looks back to these Pleasant Quaker man, she knows, who then gets the shit kicked out of him by Arthur. And I think Peaky is also, like Macbeth, saying, "Okay, there's this brutal world that's disgusting, strangely, darkly attractive. What does it exclude? What does it leave out? And both Peaky Blinders and Macbeth tell us what that is.
1: When we first saw Peaky Blinders, the beginning of the very first episode that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand yeah. up every time I see it, and I've watched it a number of times. There's Tommy Shelby on the horse yeah. riding into yeah. town, Yeah. and there's that music. Yeah. Where's that in Macbeth?
2: Yeah, well, you wouldn't think that uh, Macbeth was much of a musical, would you? But funnily enough, <laughs> it, it, it kind of is. I mean... It's there from the beginning. I mean, the witches' chants and charms are themselves sort of jingles, horrible jingles and songs. But there are songs in the play, the later scenes, which the witches are involved in, and they seem to have been written by Thomas Middleton. We now think they weren't written by Shakespeare, but they survive in the only text of the play we have. Why they're there is a good question, whether they provide a kind of comic relief or whether they actually... Communicate with a kind of dark humour and a kind of drunken revelry that Macbeth has in it. I don't know. But Thomas Middleton added a strain of, of wild comedy to Macbeth, including a witch's sing-song rhapsody about a naughty night flight with her feline familiar.
0: Now I go, now I fly, Malkin, my sweet spirit and I. Oh, what a dainty pleasure tis to ride in the air when the moon shines fair and sing and dance and toy and kiss.
2: The other thing to say here is, historically, Macbeth was superseded by William Davenant's adaptation of it, which was on the stage for many, many years. It's full of music. And then Verdi, in the most successful operatic version of the play obviously, turns the play into an opera. And he has loads of witches who are the source of this kind of dark cabaret music in Macbeth from the beginning. So it becomes a kind of singing, all singing, all dancing, murderous, black Sabbath (laughs) madness. And there is, of course, there is now a Macbeth musical, which was written and performed in Ireland, I think. Macbeth the musical.
1: One of the areas where Peaky Blinders has had a major impact is it's put Birmingham. Yeah on the map internationally, yeah, really, really has. And we've seen this steep increase yeah. in visitors to the city. Yeah. We have Peaky Blinders tours, yeah. and we have books like The Real Peaky Blinders by yeah. Carl Sheer. Yeah. Where is the relationship between Shakespeare and Peaky Blinders in Birmingham today?
2: You know, I think it's sort of manifold, really. On the the one hand, I think what Shakespeare does for Scotland is comparable to what Peaky Blinders has done for Birmingham. Macbeth, you know, 400 years later, is one of the most famous and remarkable of all Scots, just as Tommy Shelby's become a sort of scion for Birmingham. It's an ambiguous gift because each of them is a murderous criminal and yet it has a sort of magnetic draw. I think it's also probably important to say that Macbeth's Scotland is and is not Scotland and Peaky's Birmingham is and is not Birmingham. These aren't realistic renditions or or representations of these places. They're kind of hyper real. So Shakespeare's Scotland is a place in Macbeth where horses eat each other and darkness does the face of life in tomb when living light should kiss it and Um, the earth shakes and so forth. I mean, it isn't a real place. It's a place that's traumatized and by and expresses a kind of original crime. Similarly, watching series five of Peaky Blinders, it's Birmingham and it's a kind of version of hell, isn't it? I mean, it's painted in flames. There are terrible noises. There are dreams and visions. It both, it's a kind of hyper real Birmingham. And that's, that's been a brilliant thing to see because Birmingham's all too often seen as all too ordinary or, or, or banal, and it's recovered a sort of life in the history of the place, which is comparable to the life of Shakespeare's Macbeth, and I think that's a fantastic thing. Finally,
1: Ewan, when you were watching Killian Murphy playing Thomas Shelby, what speech was resonating in your mind?
2: There was one. I mean, I think for all the feverish violence and kind of mad activity of Peaky blinders it's haunted as we've said by a kind of burnt out depression and I think that's part of the strange appeal of Tommy Shelby so while I watched these sort of fireworks of machine guns and flame and surrender to this buffeting by murder after murder what I heard in my mind was this famous speech in an unfamiliar perhaps accent.
3: Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Creeps in this petty pace from day to day To the last syllable of recorded time And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death Out, out brief candle Life's but a walking shadow A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage And then is heard no more It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury,
2: signifying nothing. That deep knowledge of the futility of violence, of the futility of life lived in its most unrestrained and intense forms, I think is there. It's there at the bottom of Tommy Shelby's Irish whiskey. It's there in his burnt out, It's a fantastic performance, and for me, it recalls and reprises and renews the great performances of Shakespeare's Macbeth that have held audiences spellbound for hundreds and hundreds of years.
1: Ewan, thank you very much indeed. I'm going to look at Thomas Shelby, I'm going to look at Peaky Blinders in a totally new and, I have to say, richer light
2: Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Mike. I've enjoyed our conversation.
0: You can learn how Shakespeare and his works were an integral part of shaping the modern civic life of Birmingham in the 19th century at our website, www.historywm.com, where you can watch films, listen to more podcasts and read fascinating articles. You are also invited to join the exciting Everything to Everybody project to open up the Shakespeare Memorial Library. Just visit everythingtoeverybody.bham.ac.uk to register.